Hey everybody, it's Jason. Welcome or welcome back to the Mosaic Church Podcast. At the end of this podcast, please take a moment to connect with us on social media. It's a great place to learn more and to see what's happening at Mosaic. Most importantly, hope the following message encourages and inspires you to take a new step on your faith journey. Enjoy. Have uh, anybody who's my age or older uh, watched Saturday Night Live? You might remember a character called Debbie Downer. Does anybody know Debbie Downer? Okay, yeah, Debbie Downer was an SNL character, and she would generally show up at a joyous occasion. There's Debbie, um, like a holiday or a birthday gathering, and would interrupt the conversation of the people that she was with with her highly negative opinions and pronouncements. She was especially concerned about the rising rate of feline AIDS, often reciting that it was the number one killer of domestic cats. And any time Debbie made a negative pronouncement, it was always followed by an audible sound, and she would look and have that face in the camera. That is Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is the Debbie Downer of the Bible. When you look into Ecclesiastes, the opening statement from the author, who tradition holds is King Solomon, sets up the overall theme in verse one or chapter one, verse two, when he says, "Vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, everything is vanity." Other translations render that verse to say, "Everything is meaningless," says the teacher, completely meaningless. This statement of meaninglessness or vanity is actually repeated some 38 times throughout the chapters of Ecclesiastes. And as you go through the book, you find that Ecclesiastes has an overall hopeless sense of despair. It offers little, if any, promise or praise for the human condition. Talk about a wah-wah book in the Bible. So let me ask you as we get started today, who's excited about this encouraging word for the new year? <laughs> That's right. But despite having kind of this overall negative opinion and outlook of life, Ecclesiastes actually does offer some incredible and very powerful insight in what it means to live our lives according to God's purpose. Specifically, how and where we derive our purpose in life. You see, King Solomon, the author of Ecclesiastes, is writing from a position where he's trying to answer the question that every brooding teenager, every person facing midlife crisis, every person that looks back at the end of their life, what is the meaning of life? King Solomon is trying to answer that question, and he actually sets out to try and answer that by taking on the age-old adage, don't knock it until you try it. He actually takes it as a personal challenge when it comes to trying to find the meaning of life as he recklessly sets about trying to find meaning and purpose and pleasure here on earth. And as we open up the pages of Ecclesiastes, we begin to peer into some of the absurdity that King Solomon went to to try and find an answer to this question. What is the meaning of life? And if you'll turn in your Bibles, there's some Bibles underneath your chairs. You've got an app on your phone. You're certainly welcome to use that. We'll have the verses on the screen. We encourage you here at Mosaic to open your Bibles because it gives you a chance to read for yourself uh, what we're saying. And, of course, the opportunity to take that home and read it when you get home as well. But in, um, in chapter 2, verse 1, King Solomon says this. I said to myself, let's go for it. Experiment with pleasure. Have a good time. But there was nothing to it, nothing but smoke. 
What do I think of a fun-filled life? Insane, insane. My verdict of the pursuit of happiness, who needs it? And if you look at what King Solomon is talking about here, many theologians and scholars believe that he's actually referring to partying. When he says, go and have a fun-filled life and going out and finding a good time, Solomon's talking about going out to party. In other words, he's going to the club and hanging with his boys to see if he can find contentment or pleasure at the club. Now, I want you to imagine just for a moment, if you will, for me, the most raucous party that you've ever been with. Now, I don't want you to share any details about that party with your neighbor. We keep that to yourself, whatever that may be. But I want you just to think about what is the wildest and craziest party that you've ever attended. And I want you now to multiply that times a million, and you're probably getting somewhere in the neighborhood of what King Solomon's parties might have been like. Because King Solomon was one of the richest men, not only during his lifetime, but also to have ever lived throughout the entirety of history. I actually was doing a study and I found that King Solomon's net worth in today's dollars was $2 trillion. Trillion with a T. The dude sat on a golden throne and ate off golden silverware. The guy had money. So now imagine going to this palace and partying with a king who has that kind of money, and you'll have some idea of what that party might have been like. And in case you need some more help, book of uh, First Kings gives us some in insight into what the menu was like for one of Solomon's parties. Mind you, when we read this, this was just for one day. It says the daily food requirements for Solomon's palace were 150 bushels of choice flour and 300 bushels of meal, 10 oxen from the fattening uh, pens, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep or goats, as well as deer, gazelles, roe deer, and choice poultry. Now, for those of you who may not deal in bushels of grain or bushels of meal, if you haven't gone to the fattening uh, pens to get your meat, what that means is that Solomon, based on that menu, theologians believe that he was able to feed somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 20,000 people at his parties. So you begin to get a sense that as Solomon is searching for meaning, he's not doing it alone. He's invited many people into his search. And it doesn't just stop there. It goes on in, um, in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 4, to say that once he had looked at parting, he then goes to the next logical thing, which is alcohol. Solomon turns his search to meaning through booze. But it's interesting to hear how Solomon approaches this. Solomon's not getting drunk just for the sake of getting drunk. In fact, when he talks about this, he says that when he's drinking alcohol, he's allowing his heart to guide him with all wisdom. He's not just drinking to drink. He's not just drinking to get drunk. He's actually drinking to test to see whether or not there's pleasure in pursuing drink or whether or not the activity would bring meaning to one's life. And so we've got Solomon now partying. We've got Solomon now consuming alcohol. And then the Ecclesiastes, he goes on to say, I didn't stop there. Solomon now turns his step to his attention or his gaze to an area of life that a lot of us look at. And that's the area of accomplishments. The area of what have I done with life, doing great things with my life. And he says in verse 4 of Ecclesiastes chapter 2, that I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself and by planting beautiful vineyards. 
I made gardens and parks, filling them with all kinds of trees. I built reservoirs to collect the water to irrigate my flourishing groves. Think about this. Solomon is now searching for satisfaction by building and organizing and improving his community. If we were to go and look at other chapters in scripture, we would find that Solomon actually took 14 years to build his home. Think about that for a second. Now, I know they don't have the tools that we do today, but the dude took 14 years to build his home. Imagine what kind of home that must have been like. And then it says he took another seven years to build the temple of God. And when architecture couldn't satisfy his need, we learn that Solomon then turns his attention to nature. Maybe nature can give me some kind of meaning or purpose in life. And we learn that we, he planted these vast forests and groves in his kingdom. And actually, if you were to go to Jerusalem today, in southwest Jerusalem, there's actually these vast holes in the ground, these, these divots in the ground that they're still referred to as the pools of Solomon. And there were these pools that Solomon would use to irrigate his, his trees and his groves as he was hoping to find some kind of satisfaction in his heart. And when partying, when alcohol, architecture, nature came up short, Solomon then turns his attention to some of the age-old tropes of happiness and contentment that this world has to offer. Who can guess what those are? Any thoughts on what that might be? Money? Anybody think money? Power might be another one. Respect. And there's one more. Sex. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, in verse 7 and 8, that I bought slaves, both men and women, and others were born into my household. I also owned large herds and flocks, more than any of the other kings who had lived in Jerusalem before me. I collected great sums of silver and gold and treasure of many kings and provinces. I hired wonderful singers, both men and women, and had many beautiful concubines. I had everything that a man could desire. Think about what Solomon is saying. He's, he's living what some may call the good life. He has servants literally waiting on him hand and foot. There's no need that's not attended to. We already said he's got more money than God at this point. He's got kings from other provinces and other lands and regions all across the world, literally sending gold by the truckload to pay homage and respect to him as king of Israel. And then, of course, he has all the joys of untrammeled sexuality that were available to him at all times. This dude is literally living a real-life rap video. It's 24-7. He is living a rap video. And after he is done searching, he begins to look back. He gets an old age, and he looks back on his life, and he concludes something that I think many of us would find to be a bit surprising. Because I think many of us in Solomon's position would say, if I had that, man, I could be happy. Just one of those things that Solomon had, I would be happy. Solomon has all of it, and he looks back and gives us a surprising conclusion to what he's found. And it's actually in verse 9 of chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. We'll have it on the screen, but read along with me. Oh, how I prospered. I left my predecessors in Jerusalem far behind. Left, behind, left them behind in the dust. What's more, I had a clear head through it all. Everything I want, I took. I never said no to myself. I gave in to every impulse, hold nothing back. I sucked the marrow of pleasure out of every task. 
my reward for myself for my hard day's work. And then I took a good look at everything I had done. I looked at all the sweat and hard work, but when I looked, I saw that it was nothing but smoke. Smoke and spitting into the wind. There was nothing to any of it. Nothing. Ecclesiastes 2, 9 through 11. We find Solomon sitting at the end of his life, having sampled things that we will never see and only dream about in our lives. He looks back at the culmination of his search and all of his achievements, all his endeavors, and he says, it's meaningless. It's all meaningless. Because every circumstance, every person, every possession that Solomon had and believed that in his heart would bring him purpose ultimately failed him. Every promise of contentment, every joy that the world had to offer came back hollow and void. And like Solomon says, trying to grasp at the smoke, something that appears to be solid when you reach out for it slips through your fingers. He says so too was his search for purpose and meaning in his life. That it was something that he could only ever pursue, but never fully grasp. Solomon's search reminds me of the U2 song, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. For those of you who are U2 fans, I'm not going to sing it. You don't want to hear me sing. There's a reason why my wife is singing up here and not me. But I will remind you some of the lyrics of Bono's and U2's song. I have kissed honey lips, felt the healing on my fingertips. It burned like fire, that burning desire. I have spoke with the tongue of angels, and I have held the hand of the devil. It was warm at night, and I was cold as stone, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. In the end, Solomon's search for meaning, all he could say is, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Ecclesiastes teaches us an important lesson that while we may possess all this world has to offer, it ultimately will never fully satisfy our desire for purpose. And this is a theme that is recurrent throughout Scripture, and this is something that Jesus actually speaks to in the book of Matthew, chapter 16, verse 26. He says, And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world and yet you lose your soul? See, Jesus understood something amazing about us as human beings. Jesus understood that as human beings, we will go to exquisite lengths. We will reach and grab for anything in an attempt to try and satisfy that itching in our souls for purpose and contentment. And Jesus knew that it was also possible for us to reach and grab for these things that the world has to offer, that we may even possess some of those things, if not all of them, like Solomon, and that we could still lose our soul in the process. And thankfully, in the midst of that, while Solomon had everything and couldn't provide an answer to life's meaning and contentment, Jesus steps in and gives us the answer to what true contentment means. If you have your Bible with you, turn to John chapter 4. It's one of the four Gospels. And Jesus, in this, in John chapter 4, it records an account of Jesus meeting with a woman at the well, who actually, like King Solomon, is also searching for meaning, too. King Solomon sought out meaning and lavish parties and extravagant wealth, whereas this woman, we find, is beginning or trying to search for meaning in the arms of many lovers. And what starts out is just a practical conversation about satisfying a physical need or a physical thirst at this well it turns into a much deeper conversation about satisfying our soul's thirst. 
Look what Jesus says to her in verse 13 and 14. He tells the woman, anyone who drinks of this water, referring to the well that they're standing around, will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them to give them eternal life. Now, pause with me for just a moment and think about a time in your life when you were really, really thirsty and you were desperately craving a glass of water. For me personally, it was back when we were playing football, tackle football in high school, it's many years ago. So much so that we actually still had two days and three days going on at that point. It wasn't illegal or corporal punishment to do that to kids. Uh, we had two days and three days of football. And I can remember in the middle of August, at 90 degree temperature in Colorado and the heat, craving and desiring water and knowing that there was nothing else that was gonna satisfy my thirst. And now think about that moment when you were thirsty, craving water. Have you ever been handed something else other than water? Maybe it was a soda, maybe it was milk, maybe it was tea, maybe it was an energy drink. Whatever it was, in that moment you may have taken it because ah, it may kind of quench my thirst, but nothing like that glass of water and that is what Jesus is saying to this woman he's saying you are searching for something that cannot satisfy I am the only one who can satisfy that desire so you never thirst again I am that cold glass of water your soul desires and here's what I love about this analogy that Jesus is using with drinking water um, it's in this idea of actually taking water into your body and through your mouth. Charles Spurgeon, actually a theologian, sums it up best when he says this. Um, what does a thirsty man do to get rid of his thirst? He drinks. And perhaps there is no better representation in faith in all the word of God than that. To drink is to receive. To take in a refreshing draught, and that is all. A man's face may be unwashed, but yet he can still drink. He may be a very unworthy character, but yet a draught of water will remove his thirst. Drinking is such a remarkably easy thing to do. It's even more simple than eating. In other words, just as drinking water is a simple task that anyone can participate in, so too is accepting Jesus' promise for fulfillment and purpose in our life. Anyone can participate in that. It doesn't matter whether you're poor or whether you're wealthy. It doesn't matter whether you're young or whether you're old. It doesn't matter whether you show up to Jesus with your life all together or with your life in tatters. It doesn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat. It doesn't matter if you're straight or if you're gay. Anyone can participate in the life and purpose that Jesus has to offer. And it's just as simple as taking and receiving that promise that Jesus offers. Ecclesiastes teaches us that while we may possess the world, we can still come up not satisfied for purpose. And it's only through Jesus that we are totally satisfied. So now, that's an easy thing to understand for most of us. But there's a hardness, a difficulty in terms of actually practically applying that to our lives. See, what I have found is that I can mentally understand 
What Solomon is saying in the book of Ecclesiastes, I can read his words in the book of Ecclesiastes and mentally understand that everything he sought out, he considered to be meaningless in terms of finding purpose for his life. I can open the book of John and read Jesus' account at the well with the woman, and I can mentally understand and comprehend what Jesus is telling this woman, that he will satisfy her thirst. And yet... Despite my ability to understand it here, I still struggle all the time with the belief that more things, more stuff, whatever it is in my life, is going to satisfy my heart and my life more than Jesus can. It doesn't matter that I'm a pastor. It doesn't matter that whatever, I've been a Christian for however long. I still struggle with this. and I wrestle with this. The belief that I am somehow different than King Solomon. Or the belief that I somehow know more about my soul's need than what Jesus says I need in John chapter 4. Because I know having a 70-inch TV hanging in my living room is going to make me happy. Right? That's what's going to truly make me happy. And the problem is, is that we can oftentimes understand what, what Jesus is saying in our head. But the difference in understanding in our hearts is a lot greater than the distance of the 12 inches that separates the two. It's one thing to understand something mentally in our heads. It's a completely different thing to understand it in our hearts. And so there is no other time during the year when I find myself wrestling with this idea of more stuff, more stuff, than this time of year. And of course, I'm talking about New Year's resolutions. New Year's resolutions, that time of year when I make the list of all the things I'm going to purchase, all the things I'm going to accomplish, all the things I'm going to change in my life that are going to make me more happy and more satisfied in the new year. Who has New Year's resolutions this year? Anybody? Okay. So for those of you who have New Year's resolutions, perhaps the better question is, five days into January, how many of you are still keeping those New Year's resolutions? Anybody? Yeah, I've got a couple hands. Okay, you're doing good. Doing better than I am. I also have a couple New Year's resolutions as well, one of which is to lose some weight. I want to get down to 194 pounds. Now I know that's a weirdly, oddly specific number. Why not 190 or 195? I don't know. In my mind, I've come to this place that 194 is my perfect weight. And I want to be there so that I can go to the pool the two weeks out of the year in Wisconsin is actually warm enough to go to the pool and not be self-conscious about myself. And that desire to be healthy, those resolutions, those changes that we want to make in our lives, those aren't bad things. We should desire to make changes in our lives. We should desire to make improvements. But the problem is, when I put those desires ahead or above anything else and believe that that is what is going to satisfy me or give me purpose in my life. When I say having that thing above Christ is what's going to truly satisfy my heart and give me purpose. So let me ask you then this morning, what are you hanging your hopes on? What are you hanging your hopes on this new year? I have to believe that myself and Solomon are not the only two people in this room who have ever tried to find hope and contentment in this life apart from Christ. I would bet that if we are honest in this moment, every one of us would be able to say that at times we have misplaced our hope in other things. Maybe you're single this year. 
and you're hoping that a relationship is going to bring you contentment. I said last time I was up here, man, I was single for 35 years of my life. I know those feels. And I can tell you honestly, the number of bad relationships I got into because I thought the simple change of my relationship status on Facebook was going to keep the happiness of my life. Bad decisions, man. Maybe some of you are teenagers in here and you've hung your hopes on happiness, on getting into a college, your dream college, a letter of acceptance as a youth pastor. I can't tell you how many students I've walked with that believe their happiness and their future success hung on an acceptance letter from a college. I have laughed and rejoiced with those students who received those letters, and I cried with those students who got rejected. Maybe if you're a parent in this room today, it's the success of your children. Maybe if you're an American in 2020, it's the results of an election this year. Maybe it's more money, a bigger house, a better job, a fancier car. Whatever it is, can I tell you this? Will you hear me right now? Whatever you are putting your hope in, if you are putting that hope above Christ, you are going to be like Solomon and end up chasing the wind because those things were never meant to fulfill your heart or give you contentment. They were never meant. They were never meant to. So how do we actually apply this? I mean, we got this idea, Solomon's talking about contentment, riches, all these other things. How do we actually apply this to our lives? Well, what I would suggest for us as we go into this week is to ask ourselves one question. One simple question. Am I keeping first things first? Am I keeping first things first? In other words, am I focusing first on those things that have eternal value in my life? Or am I focusing first on those things that just have temporary value? If you're a Christ follower in this room today, that looks like, that may look like, am I actually putting Christ first above all things? Now, before you answer that, let me just say to you, I know the answer is no, because I'm the same way too. I desire in my heart to put Christ first above all things, but it gets tripped up all the time, man. This morning I got up, I was going to get up and pray before I got in here, and I was scanning through Instagram and Facebook and looking at all these different things on there. I know we all struggle with this, but this is a reminder to keep Christ first in our lives above and beyond all things because it's only through Christ that we are truly satisfied. How do we do that? Jason talked a little bit about groups and being something that we can get involved with. I would highly encourage you to get involved with groups. It's an incredible way to seek God, to grow in your relationship with Jesus, to know what it is to become a disciple of God. That's one way that you can strive to keep Christ first in your life. For those of you in here this morning who may be an unbeliever, you're unsure about this whole Jesus thing. That's okay. There's still things about keeping first things first that you can apply in your life as well. For most of us here, we can recognize that there are things in this life that have more value than others. For example, you could say that a house or a TV or more money, while those things could be good, the idea of actually volunteering or loving our fellow man, that those things are better. And so if you don't believe in God, that's okay. We love you and you are welcome here no matter what. But let me just encourage you that you too can focus on putting first things first in your life and seeking things that will give you more fulfillment than those things that are temporary. <clears throat> and I have one other group that I want to address this morning as we close out here. 
I would be remiss if I didn't bring up the fact that there may be people in this room this morning who are begin, beginning to identify with King Solomon. What do I mean by that? I mean that you've heard the story of King Solomon and how he found that there was meaningless in all the things he pursued, and you're beginning to say, I recognize that in my own life. There have been things that I've been chasing after, things that I've pursued that I hoped would bring me happiness and fulfillment, and yet they've left me hollow, empty, or void. They haven't delivered on what they promised. <clears throat> the good news is, as we heard from John chapter 4, Jesus offers solution, purpose, direction, contentment for our lives, and it's open and available to anyone. In fact, when Jesus told the woman about this water that would satisfy her, she said to him, I want that. Give me that drink. And maybe that is you here today. Maybe you're hearing for the first time Jesus' invitation to give you purpose and meaning in your life. And you're saying, I want that water in my life. I'm tired of chasing after the things that have let me down. I want to go through life be satisfied. I want to know what it is to have purpose and contentment in my life. If that is you, I want to invite you just to join me in a moment of prayer. Because the gospel, the book of Romans says that in order to receive that life, in order to take in that water that Christ has offered, that life that God offers, all we have to do is confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts that God raised Jesus from the dead and that he is Lord and that God will make those promises available to us. Not only those promises of purpose and contentment, but of salvation and eternal life. If we're certainly simply willing to submit our life and our heart to him. So I'm just going to ask that everybody bow their head and close their eyes in this moment. And I just want to invite you that if that is something that you want, if that is something that you feel in your heart, that, man, I want to drink that water that Jesus has to offer. I've never tasted it before, or I've tasted it in the past, and I want it in my life again. If that's you, would you just raise your hand? I'm not going to ask you to come up front or do anything silly. I see you. 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 God sees you. Just join with me in prayer. Quietly from your seat. Dear Jesus, I confess that I have tried to find life in so many different things. And all of those things have left me thirsty and wanting. Your word says that all I need to do is confess, Lord, that you are God. And your promises are made available to me. So Jesus, I thank you now for your death on a cross that paid for my sins and forgave me and made me right with God. That I may now have life and life more abundantly through your son, Jesus Christ. Come into my heart, Lord. Heal me, change me, make me more like you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Once again, thank you so much for listening. If you live in Southeast Wisconsin, we'd love to connect with you at our weekend gathering. For service time, directions, and to learn more about our vision to ignite a movement of love that transforms our community and the world, visit us at mosaicwi.com.